This is Isaac Morehouse. Welcome to the podcast where we discuss education, entrepreneurship, big ideas, how to put them into practice in the real world, and above all, how to live free. I am delighted today to be joined by Brian Kaplan, who is an economist at George Mason University. Uh, He blogs on Econlog, which is one of the few blogs that I actually visit directly on a regular basis instead of just waiting to see what comes into my newsfeed. Uh, Phenomenal, phenomenal blog. And he is the author of The Myth of the Rational Voter and Selfish Reasons to Have More Kids. And he is also the author of the forthcoming book, The Case Against Education. Brian Kaplan, welcome to the podcast. Thanks very much for having me, Isaac. So uh, I definitely want to get into three areas of your research in particular, um, education, procreation, and immigration, (laughs) (laughs) because I love alliteration. But before we do, I want to talk a little bit about you. Uh, We want to explore the life of Brian, as it were. So... so, um, movies yeah absolutely so so where are you from and when did you become interested in economics i am from northridge california which is in the san fernando valley 30 minutes north of los angeles uh, downtown los angeles and i first got interested in economics in my senior year of high school what what was it that made you attracted to economics in high not many people have economics classes in high school was it something else uh, I actually did have an economics class in high school, though it was terrible, although the, the, I actually got the teacher to let me take over the class one day and told them everything I thought. Uh, <laughs> but uh, I mean, I, the, the actual you know, the chain of events is I had a friend who told me I should really read Atlas Shrugged by Ayn Rand, and I did. And I got very excited about it, but then I was wondering, well, is any of this stuff actually doable, or is this just a pipe dream? And that's when I started looking around for economics to read, and then found at least some people saying, no, it is doable. It's not a pipe dream. So at least there were some smart people who thought that free markets were the way to go. And uh, that's really where I started. And, and did you know from that point on that this is what you wanted to do sort of professionally or was it just an intellectual interest? When did you kind of merge your interest in economics with, hey, this is what I want to make a career out of? Yeah, so I always, I've wanted to be a professor since junior high. Although at the time I wanted to be an English professor, actually. I was really interested in literature and uh, again, I, I had no idea about what the academic labor market was like or anything else. I just said, well, well, this is interesting, so I'll go and do this. And then once I started reading more widely in my senior year, that's when I mostly lost interest in literature as a field that I would do professionally and got interested in economics. And actually, for a long time, I was thinking that I was more likely I would get a PhD in philosophy and try to be a philosophy professor. And then when I was undergraduate at Berkeley, sort of actually in my like junior year, senior year, that's when I was weighing which one do I really want to do and decided to go with economics and I've been really happy how it worked out for me. And where did you do your undergrad and then your PhD? Yeah, so I was an undergrad at UC Berkeley and I got my PhD at Princeton. Okay, okay. And did you focus on a specific area of economics um, when you were getting your PhD? I know now you, you cover such a wide variety of things, but... Yeah. I focused on the most boring stuff that, I, that I've ever done. So <laughs> I, which, you know, Maybe isn't that bad, but uh, I mean, I did a few. You know, a f- my dissertation had uh, two pieces on the economics of state and local government, and then a piece on macroeconomics and war. Huh. So that was, uh, you know, that was my dissertation. That was the kind of stuff I was working on then. Basically, I was just trying to do some standard stuff in order to get my dissertation done and get my PhD, and then work on the stuff that really interested me more. Hmm. 
and, and now you seem to be in a place, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, where you kind of freely explore a really wide variety of topics. And I would even say you are you are part economist, part philosopher. Uh, I mean, you're, you're kind of willing to, to go outside of sort of very strict bounds of, of sort of pure economics. Um, is that something that you just had to kind of earn the freedom to do personally and professionally? And well, there's two things. So, of course, one of them is once you have tenure, which I do, then you really are free to do whatever you want. <laughs> the main constraint is just other people will look at you funny and you might not get a raise if you're doing weird stuff. But uh, that's not such a bad constraint if your salary's already okay. <laughs> uh, so, I mean, that you know, tenure is really was really the key. But then, second, you know, secondarily, so you know, being at George Mason, where I have very supportive peers, where people like what I, you know, people are interested in what I'm in, in the stuff that interests me, interests me. So, I've got that going for me too. And then finally, actually, the rise of blogging has made a big difference too, because blogging really makes it easy to to dabble in something and then get a little more interested and get a little more interested and then finally decide you really want to do serious work on it. Whereas as long as you're only writing academic papers, it's just much harder to get your feet wet. So really, blogging has been a big deal for me just in terms of making me realize that there's a market for your smaller ideas and see where they go. And you know, a lot, you know, usually it's just like one short piece and that's it. But Sometimes it expands and takes on a life of its own. You know, that that makes me think of something that I've wondered for quite a while. It seems to me, at least sort of from the outside looking in, that economists were much more uh, likely to be early adopters of blogging and much more engaged in blogging than academics in other fields. Now, I don't know if that's true. It appears to be true from where I'm sitting. Do you have any, if, if it is true, do you have any theories on why that might be? Yeah, so I do think that it is true. So, of course, you have to adjust for economics being a, just a larger subject with more faculty and more professors and more practitioners than, than say, sociologists or whatever. So there's, so there's that. But, yeah, it does seem like there's a higher percentage of economists who blog. And I think it's because you've got a small but still noticeable percentage of economists who didn't really get into economics to do the work that they're doing. Uh, so, you know, like the kind of work that academic economists do is you know, writing writing journal journal articles for other professors and I'd say five or ten percent of economists really got into it because they were fascinated by the world, and then this is the way they earn their living. And then blogging gives them a chance to use these tools to cover a broader range of subjects. And I think you know a lot of other areas there isn't the same element of I entered it because I was really curious about the world. It's it's more of just a pure professional track. There's more economists who are there because it's just a field that lets them do what they want. Whereas uh, most other fields, everyone there is there because they want to be part of that discipline narrowly defined. Hmm. Now, how often do you blog? Do you have like a regular schedule you stick to or is it just whenever you're inspired? Yeah, so I usually try to blog five days a week. So every week, every weekday, I've got four kids, so I don't blog much on the weekends. Uh, in, in, the, in the past, when I, like it was uh, more, more based on inspiration, now I... Uh, especially so the last two years I've been focusing really intently on finishing the case against education, my book. Mm-hmm. And so I've just been trying to cut out all extraneous stuff so I can get done. And that, so that's cut, that's probably cut down the blogging a bit, but still, you know, like five pieces a week is pretty much what I shoot for. When you sit down, you always have something that you're going to write already, or do you have to sometimes say, okay, what am I going to blog about today? And, and if so, how do you find inspiration? So the biggest inspiration is lunch. So, I mean, I get lunch with the other with other professors. They're almost all bloggers. So a lot of times, whatever we're arguing about at lunch is what gets blogged. <laughs> uh, I mean, for, you know, in terms of ideas, so 
uh, for me, it's, it, it's, it's rather than I sit down and I try to figure out what I want to write, it's more often that I have lots of ideas and I write them down and then I blog them when I have the time. Hmm. So, I mean, I mean, I, I, mean, I have like a hundred different posts that I, I basically I just write a title and maybe a few words to remind myself what, what I'm supposed to say. So, so you keep a bunch of drafts with, with a rough, yeah. okay, gotcha. Meanwhile, gotcha. I mean, a, a draft equals a title and a few words. Yep. So, I mean, and that, that's, that's sort of the, that's sort of the way that I start working on projects is I just go and I write down a title somewhere and then it's there and I can come back to it eventually. You know, there's a lot of things that have been sort of sitting there for years and I've never gotten around to doing them. Uh, I mean, again, a lot of times the stuff that I don't do is the stuff where, you know, like it, it's very meaty and I feel like it's a lot of work and I just don't have the energy that day to really do it. And then sort of when I, when I have a quieter time, when I've reached a good breaking point in other work, that's when I will go and write up the things that, have, that I've, I've been meaning to do for years, but haven't gotten around to it. Um, yeah. So like, you know, like what really doesn't matter very much for me is current events. I try to not worry about current events. I mean, in general, I find them silly and uh, silly circuses and I just don't care. Uh, so, um, you know, like the only thing, you know, like you know, so, you know, sometimes I will you know, be negatively inspired by a current event where I'll write a piece saying how this current event is actually another further evidence that these current events are relevant and don't really prove what you think <laughs> they prove. But, um, you know, I don't know, like the, on Twitter, I've been arguing with a guy at Heritage Naming, Mike Gonzalez, and he just tweeted saying, like, latest events in Missouri prove Brian's wrong on this. And I'm like, 40 kids in a, one college prove I'm wrong about something? How could that be? <laughs> like, like, well, that, that's one like of the grain of sand on the sea. Like, how could that mean anything? Well, so that's a, that's one of the things that I have always I've really loved about your work. So so I'm going to like thank you for a few things for a minute here, if you'll indulge me. So so absolutely. <laughs> yes, you can, you can just bask in it for a minute. So early on uh, your work on public choice theory and sort of the the incentive problems baked into democracy were very instrumental in not only my own understanding of the world, but changing my uh, my own kind of life direction in terms of co- helping me come to the conclusion that politics is a is a not a effective way to try to make the world a freer, better place. And then later, your work on um, education, especially the signaling theory of education, which we'll, we'll talk about, uh, was actually very instrumental in eventually leading me to launch my company, Praxis. But but more than both of those, there's two little blog posts you did that I come back to these probably once a year. Um, they're they're so valuable to me, and and they really embody kind of what I like about your outlook. They're called "My Beautiful Bubble" and "Make Your Own Bubble in Ten Easy Steps." Ah. <laughs> and, and and they're really they're you talking about. And I'm going to quote briefly from um, from one of them, talking about how you approach life and how you you're not ashamed of the fact that you live in a bubble. In fact, you deliberately have constructed it. And the quote here is uh, from the, the first one, My Beautiful Bubble. I pursue the strategy that actually works, making my small corner of the world beautiful in my eyes. I import almost everything I consume from the outside world. Indeed, I frequently leave the security of my bubble to walk the earth, but I do so as a tourist. I hunt for the best that, quote, my society has to offer. I partake, then I go back to my bubble and tell myself, America is a nice place to visit, but you wouldn't want to live there. Uh, I absolutely love that. And I, I think I find it really fascinating that you, you're sort of so comfortable with the fact that, look, you want to enjoy your life um, <laughs> and not feel guilt over that. Was, was this like a philosophy that took you a long time to come to? It was gradual. The sort of sort of the you know the reason why that post got written was Charles Murray had his uh, see that the title is escaping me for a minute. Um, he's the one with 
Fishtown and the other place. Um, oh yeah, yeah. Let's see. Uh, see White America's in the title. What do you remember what it is? Was it uh, coming apart? Yeah, yeah. Coming, coming apart. Okay. It's coming apart. Yeah. So anyway, you know, like sort of a tie into that book is he had had this test where you can go and find out how much of a bubble you're in, and he was commenting on that all these elites that he knows are have these you know very low scores, indicating they really have very little contact with American society. No one knows what's going on, and he said, and they're always so surprised. They're always amazed. What? I'm an outsider. I mean, I'm just a regular old PhD American guy. Like, of course, I'm just middle America here. And then they find out, no, you're actually really weird. You have very little familiarity with what normal Americans have. And I actually, on the one hand, when I when I looked at this test, uh, like I knew my score was actually low, even by Murray standard. <laughs> but the other thing is I, I expected my score to be extremely low. It was no surprise to me because I've always felt like an outsider from, from a very early age. I never really felt well integrated into American society. I mean, like some, from the earliest point, always felt like I was just a different person doing my own thing. So that, so that was sort of key. And actually then the idea of writing this post, uh, the, the pro bubble post, I put down a title, but then I sat on it for maybe like six months or so because I wasn't sure whether I wanted to get everyone angry at me. And then, <laughs> and then, and then finally, yeah, like, like, I don't know why, well, you know, I don't, I don't know why they get so angry. And so I finally then with the, you know, like once I felt comfortable doing it, went, went and, went and, uh, and wrote it out. Uh, so, I mean, a lot, you know, a lot of it, you know, does reflect attitudes I've had from, for really as long as I can remember, but, uh, you know, Charles Murray's lamenting of the bubble that people live in, uh, really, you know, was, was the spur that got me to actually pull all the ideas together and write it up. Did, did people get angry in response? Yeah, plenty did. And, and okay, so I wanted I mean, to ask you. You, you, look at, you can look at the comments and just how freaking out people were. But, well, you uh, have you yes. have a really engaged comment section on that blog, <laughs> and, and and for the most part, compared to let's say the comments on a YouTube video or something, um, fairly fairly sophisticated and some some pretty good stuff. What is your personal? Do you have like a policy regarding comments? Do you go and read them all? Do you respond to them? Do you not read them? What is? How do you deal with them? Yeah. So, I mean, in, in general, I just try to focus on writing more pieces. I mean, I figure that if I write another piece, it could be read by 10,000 people, whereas if I respond to comments, it'd be read by maybe 100 people. Yep. Uh, so, you know, like mostly I, I see the comments as a place for the readers to talk amongst themselves. So, you know, every now and then uh, there'll be a comment that stands out and then I'll actually blog something based upon it. Uh, you know, and, you know, there, you know, there is a lot of just extreme anger in the comments, which... I don't see you know, any, you know, I mean, I, you know, again, I don't really see it as so much intellectual as just the, you know, the personal problems of people taking, <laughs> you know, taking print form. Um, and, you know, so, you know, I mean, the, I mean, you know, there's so many people who are angry and really they see, you know, the world of ideas as being the source of their anger, whereas it would be amazing if it weren't really the reverse direction of causation and it's, they're angry people, so they seek out things that will upset them. So does it ever, does it ever wear you down? Does it ever get to you? I mean, you, you write on and speak on some pretty radical things that engender uh, a lot of less than kind responses. <laughs> does it ever get to you? Even though it's, it's easy to sort of intellectually say, yes, these people clearly have some, some issues or people are trolling or whatever. I've got more important things to do, but you're human too. Does it, does it get yeah. to you at times? If I, if I was reading everything very carefully, then it probably would be discouraging. Or again, look, I mean, here's the thing for me: it's very hard for me to read a substantive criticism and not respond to it. Yeah. So either I need to have the time to respond, or I just put it off. Although you know, the other stuff that really gets under my skin, it's not really random comments. It's it's mostly people that I think ought to know better saying something that that I think I think they actually know is wrong. 
Uh, so actually, it's, it's disagreements with my close friends that actually I lose the most sleep over. Huh. Because, and, and in a way, you know, so you could say, well, like, I feel like they ought to agree with me and they don't. And then it's like, how can that possibly be? He's really smart. I can't just say that he's dumb. I can't just say he doesn't know what he's talking about. What's going on here? And yeah, so you know, when I do when I do lose sleep, which at my age is actually pretty rare now, but you know, maybe I probably lose like four nights of sleep per year, like you know, four nights a year where I actually just don't sleep at all because there's something that's intellectually bugging me so much. When was the last time that happened? Uh, let's see. Like, like, hmm. uh, actually, so actually, after the debate I just had with Garrett Jones, I, I, I couldn't fall asleep till four in the morning, so that wasn't quite, quite losing a full a full night of sleep. What, what was the debate about? Uh, that was a debate on immigration that I just did on Tuesday night. Okay. All right. We'll have to get a link up uh, to that. What made you lose sleep over it? Uh, well, I mean, like just in my mind, going over all the things that I said or said or didn't say, and the things you know, and like thinking of replies to things that I didn't think of replies to, and you know, just you know, psychoanalyzing what's really going on here. What's the what are they? What's actually driving this disagreement? How can this be? So. So, so that's what I've always found interesting. So. You know, I, I wholly embrace this idea of building your own bubble, and that's been a very freeing outlook for me to, for example, uh, not follow the news at all and um, to kind of tune out things that just make me less happy. But for me, that also manifests in uh, I don't read the comment section and I hate debate. I don't like debate as a mm-hmm. format because I feel like most people that are doing it and that are that are observing it are there more just for sort of, mm-hmm. yeah, my side is better than for like, like I have a hard time. You seem to embrace that. You are open to debate. You engage this stuff more mm-hmm. while still trying to maintain this idea of only doing things that sort of add to your life. Um, mm-hmm. Do you enjoy debate? So 50-50. So there, there's some kinds of debate, debate where it's very confrontational and then I, I, mean, I have to steal myself to do it. While I'm doing it, I'm having a great time. But – uh, you know, so like, like probably uh, almost certainly actually the most hostile audience I've ever went before. I just spoke for the Writers Workshop, which is sort of an umbrella group of anti-immigration groups. <laughs> and and I was brought in as being really a walking caricature of someone who actually does favor open borders. So everyone with everyone there besides me was you know, like, like, like really almost everyone you know, very, you know, very anti-immigration. There are a few people who had a you know, more nuanced view, but still pretty critical. And then I'm brought in to be the one person that says that water runs uphill and they're wrong. <laughs> uh, so yeah, I'm not going to say that I enjoyed the time of actually like, you know, approach of like going there. But you know, again, once I actually had to speak, I always, you know, so I always, I always enjoy that. So, yeah. I mean, that's, that's, that's just a lot of fun for me. Uh, but yeah, but like, I mean, for me you know, debate, it's, you know, it's a very big part of just keeping yourself honest and, yeah, so you know, like there is the danger of the bubble that you just shut yourself off to reality, and I don't want to do that. Uh, you know, I, I might be happier, but I just think that's not a worthy way of living. So, like you know, but like when I do get you know go and uh, you know and and, you know, and have intellectual confrontation, I want it to be you know like you know, something that seems fruitful to me and where I'm really you know, where at least I'm either learning or I'm learning that there isn't very much to learn from someone. So yeah, yeah, you you want to go out and and visit the the outer world yeah. to either discover yeah. that your bubble should expand or to remind yourself why you yeah. <laughs> created it right. first. So yeah. would you describe yourself? You said that you've always been kind of an outsider. Uh, would you describe yourself? Would you say that you're like eccentric? Yeah, I'm eccentric. I mean, I mean, I'm, I'm, uh, I'm not so eccentric that I was unable to finish a uh, PhD. Okay. So, <laughs> so, so, so you got to so, tell yeah. me there, there's legends about your eccentricity, Brian, you got to tell ah. me this is true. So right. I've heard I've heard these rumors that at seminars, like after a lecture or something, you'll be out in the hallway and a student will come up and ask you a question. And supposedly uh, you will say something like, 
how long is this going to be? And if it's longer than a few minutes, you'll go get a chair and a cushion and sit down. And, and <laughs> supposedly you, you describe this as to the student, look, I'm not trying to be rude. I've just calculated that the social cost of me doing this and appearing weird is lower than the physical cost of the discomfort I'll endure from standing here. I might have put it that way when I was younger, but I definitely do that. Uh, I mean, the, the reason is pretty simple. Actually, about 10 years ago, I start, I got both horrible tailbone pain and uh, severe plantar fasciitis where your feet hurt to stand. And I mean, I dealt with that pain for about a year or two. And finally, you know, I went to a lot of doctors and things like that. And nothing really helped. But finally, I just experimented with, uh, with lifestyle changes in order to stop doing the things that aggravated the pain. And after a couple of years, I've managed to like 90% cure my problem, but I never want to have the problem again. Wow. Problems. Yeah. Problems. So well, I get the cushion cushion because I don't want the tailbone pain and I sit because I don't want the foot pain. Well, and I, and I, there's something about that, that I, that I love. I mean, first of all, uh, you know, that sort of cost benefit analysis is very much like an economist, but just the awareness of, look, there's no, there's no universal, uh, one thing is rude and one thing's not there's, yeah. there's cost and benefits to everything. And you have to decide what's worth it to you. Uh, again, it's this idea of creating the, the type of life that you want to live for yourself, even in terms of, okay, people might think I'm weird if I write on this topic or if I behave this way mm -hmm. in public. Um, and the ability to just know what you want and go with it, um, is something that I think is, is very commendable. Uh, yeah, I mean, that, now, I mean, you know, so nowadays I think I'm much more likely just to say, what do you mind terrible if I went and got a chair? Yeah. Rather, rather than explaining exactly what's going on. <laughs> so, you know, which, you know, I mean, I, th I think people, you know, makes people a lot more comfortable. So, you know, um, you might remember a piece, a piece that I did on how I raised my social intelligence. So, you know, as I got an order, I realized that often less is more and you don't even need to explain why you're doing something eccentric. If you just say, what do you mind terribly? No. All right. Thanks. I'll be right back. And then you do it. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's amazing what you can get if you just ask kindly. Yeah. yeah that's yes. Um, you know, one of the, one of the, you know, this is the great rule of fundraising. Why do people give money? Because they're asked. <laughs> it generalizes. Why do people do anything for anyone? Well, because they're asked. Yeah, that, that is absolutely, absolutely true. Um, well, let me ask you about, so you, you blog quite a bit and you've written, I would consider both of your books that you've published so far to be, um, popular books as in accessible to lay people, not purely, mm -hmm. they're not published by uh, an academic press that's charging $200 for them. And they're very accessible. The first book is by Princeton, but it did that, but they don't, but they only charge like 30 bucks. Yeah. So, yeah. And it, it's a very much, I mean, it was a well-read book, well-received, uh, broadly. Um, do, is there ever, do you ever feel a tension as an academic that, Oh, you shouldn't be out there blogging and doing Twitter. You should be doing more academic journaly stuff. How do you make that decision of what to focus on? Yeah, so I never feel that. Uh, so with the books, I always try to write something that will work at multiple levels. So I always, you know, like whenever I do a book, I want it to, so that active researchers in the field, active researchers in the field, at minimum, feel that it's competent, but also you know, you know learn, you know, learn something. But then also that intelligent layman feel like uh, can understand it and learn something from it too. So I, and, you know, so essentially, I, I want to write things where. You know, good undergraduates can understand it, but experts also feel like there's some added value and it's not just re-explaining stuff that's already known. Do you uh, still so, um, do you still write uh, papers for academic journals at all? Yeah, so I you know, like basically I will co I co-author papers with students for academic journals, but I mean no longer as much payoff for me. I just do it uh, you know to help the students out mostly. 
So yeah, and again, like in terms in terms of academic journal articles, I did publish you know, a bunch of those when I was trying to get tenure. But again, like honestly, the you know, typical number of readers for an academic journal article is just so low. You just have so, you read so few people. Yeah. And again, I mean, I wouldn't want to do like a pure popular book. I don't want to be like an Ann Coulter or someone like that writing something that just is demagoguery, you know, uh, you know stoking the masses. So, so you want but, to bring some research to the yeah. table. Yeah. yeah. You know, so you want to, I want to write something that works at multiple levels. That's you know, readable and important and an important topic, but and can be understood by smart people everywhere. But also experts in the field say this has been done and you know, like in a high quality way, and it actually and they learn something from it too. Uh, and, you know, just the number of readers that you can get from books is just so much greater. And then for, you know, furthermore, you can just do a much more satisfying product when you do a book. Journal articles, you're so circumscribed to make one small point that it's, you know, it's just, you know, it's what, you know, it's what Marx would call it's alienated labor. Like you're doing something that isn't really the way you want to do it just to please the market. <laughs> and when you do a book, you're still pleasing the market, but you, the, the strictures are just so, so relaxed. So do you think that more academics should sort of look that way? Or, or I guess, do you think that the academic publishing kind of industry or institution is is flawed and needs to be improved in some way? Yeah, so my honest view is that you know, so, you know, most academics should just be, find, you know, find another line of work. <laughs> <laughs> most academics, they're terrible teachers and the research is really boring. And I don't think that they have anything more interesting they want to talk about. I think they're just boring people. So yeah, that's my, 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 my grim, honest assessment. Uh, out of people who can do better, and there's plenty of people who can do better, yeah, I think that they put too much energy into doing journal articles and too little into addressing more and more important topics in book format. Of course, you can imagine a world where journals are just very different from they are now. Yeah. But, um, you, know, you know, like, you know, the, the, book, the book is a, you know, it's just, a, you know, it's a nice product. It's one where, you know, where again, like, the whole idea of it is to try to reach a broader audience. And yeah, you know, so, so. I mean, I, I mean, I also have a post called, you know, something like, you know, like steps for writing worthy nonfiction, where a big part of it is, you know, you know, choose an important topic, don't just preach to the choir, and again, like, you know, so much academic work, like, you know, deliberately goes against everything I'm advising, where they choose a topic that is very important to three people in the world, <laughs> and and you know, I mean, I have heard of the defense, it's only three people, but the three really important people. Once in a long while that happens, but usually they're not three important people. They're just three other boring people. Well, and those three important people uh, are not, you know, prohibited from reading the book <laughs> either. <laughs> right. So, so what is your process? So this is your third book you're working on. What is your process for writing a book and how does that differ from, um, you know, your daily blog posts? You can sit down, you've got a bunch of ideas in the queue. You can write them up. Minimal editing probably. You can go back and fix them if you want to. How does writing a book differ? Is it stressful for you? Is it fun? Would you rather be teaching? I mean, what it, what is it like? Yeah. So, especially this last book, I, I just finished finally finished the first draft. It's taken me four years, and it's 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 been laborious. It's felt like work because it's just such a marathon. Uh, the, you know, the way that the way that I normally uh, start writing a book is there's got to be some big big idea or big thing or big thing that people think that just seems totally wrong to me. Hmm. All right. So there has to be some popular. Uh, popular view. It's got to have some plausibility intellectually, but it's just, but like my ultimate just has to be, this is just totally wrong. It's just so wrong headed. And that's generally where I start is the world is wrong. <laughs> <laughs> and, and that's, and then, you know, of course, you know, it's easy to say that, but then to actually do the detective work and see, well, can I actually back this up? So for my first book, the myth of rational voter, that was much more uh, like within the area of my training. And so I didn't need to do. I mean, I mean, I, I did try to broaden my horizons and read widely, but it wasn't that big of a stretch. But for my kids' book, and especially for this recent book, 
Um, my, you know, my next my next step is to just try to read everything relevant that any any that that's you know any semi semi credible person has said, right? Which is why it's taken four years because you know there's so much written on education, especially. But I so I I, I think that like if you if you're an economist and you only read what economists say about a subject, then you suck. Like that's not the way that you that you learn about the world by finding out what people like you or in your field think about it. You need to find out what almost well, really like what does everybody think about this. And so just, what you know, percentage of this around. this four years? What percentage of that was consuming ideas from others versus uh, what percentage was actually you writing out your own ideas? I think that it's like like at least at least eighteen at least eighteen months out of, out of those out of those two years and probably actually two full years was reading. Wow. Wow. So, and, and again, usually what I, so usually what I actually did is I had like a nine month period at the beginning where I just read really widely and just, you know, so, you know, so, you know, economics, uh, education research, uh, educational psychology, sociology. So tried to just you know, read really widely and sort of get, get a broad, a broad idea of what's going on. And again, you know, and, and like during that period, the sort of like the main corrections to like, like, you know, what, what am I, what am I not understanding? Well, what, where am I wrong? What can I fix? And then, like when I'm actually ready to write the book, or like, like that's where, uh, when I'm when I'm writing, when I'm just about ready to write a section, that's when I'll go and reread all the stuff that I've read before, and that's and when I'm right before right before I'm ready to read, that's when I go and and then try to read everything I can, and then right so then you know, basically immediately before I write a section, I try to just read everything, and have it all in front of me, and be as fresh in my mind as possible, and then when I write, I try to write when I'm at my lifetime peak of knowledge of that subject. Knowing I'm going to forget 80, you know, 75% of it pretty soon, but at least there was a moment when I was at my my lifetime peak of yeah. knowledge on that subject. So you can say I am not an expert on this, but at the time I wrote that, I was right. Yeah, at the time I wrote it, at least I had, I had done the best that I really that I really could think of myself as doing. When you write, do you write for like hours at a time? Yeah. So nor- norm- normally I just you know, sit in front of the you know, once I'm ready to write, then I will just sit in front of the screen and. Um, you know, like especially for this book, with everything that everything that I've read right around me, because a lot of times I'm ready to write a sentence, and then I'm like, wait, so let me just double check with everything that I've read that that sentence is accurate. Uh, so, you know, you know, like you know, there's you know, very big difference between trying to accurately summarize what's what what other people know versus, uh, you know, versus versus you know, like where you're pouring out like your general perspective on things. That's a lot easier for me. Yeah, I mean, the easiest thing for me to write write of all are dialogues. Yep. Dialogues to me, where I just break up an imaginary conversation about a subject, that to me is the easiest thing, and that just writes itself. Whereas, you know, summarizing, right? What is the what is the state of the art on ability bias in education? That's where it's a very grueling process, where every sentence, like, can I say that? Is that is that a fair and responsible yeah. sentence? Yeah, doing right? justice to somebody else's work uh, is very very hard, and I think that's the part that. Yeah will sort of give your book that academic credibility um, and not just be, you know, like you said, pure, pure pop. So, okay. So, so now that we have sort of established your humanity, you're a normal, honest, (laughs) decent guy. Let's talk about some of your more controversial ideas. Um, Well, first, what would you say, what would you say is the most radical thing that you believe? So most radical in terms of setting people the most or like really the, like the biggest change from the status quo is uh, open borders. So I think that immigration restrictions are morally wrong and economically destructive. Not they've driven us into poverty, but they have prevented the world from being vastly, vastly richer and better place than it is. I think that the, you know, the 19th century American open borders approach was the height of, you know, of philosophical, ethical and economic wisdom. 
cultural wisdom, every other kind of wisdom, and of course the entire world has greatly fallen away from that, and I say this has been a tragic error, which has you know, immiserated the world relative to what it would have been. Well, and, and I have noticed, and, and I I agree with you that um, probably of, of your beliefs and certainly of mine as well, the one that causes the most ire among people is anything related to open borders or even just easing immigration restrictions yes. in any way. Right. And I want to know your thoughts on why that is. Has that always been the case? Is that a built-in mm-hmm. function of human nature to be totally scared of, of immigrants and outsiders? Or is there something about the current uh, political, cultural dynamic that makes people so hostile on this issue? Yeah, so ultimately I think it's, it's very hardwired. Uh, so in my, in my first book, I can you know, I talk about anti-foreign bias. Uh, there's a great piece by an economist named Paul Rubin trying to give an evolutionary basis for, all, uh, for it. And again, it's a you know, pretty simple story that uh, when human beings were cavemen, xenophobia was, 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 the, was very sensible because when another tribe shows up and you're just hunter-gatherers, you are competing for fixed pie resources. And of course, uh, it may not just be that they're hunting your deer, but that they're going to slip into your camp before dawn and murder all the men and take, and make, and, uh, take all the women as slaves. You know, this really did happen throughout much of human history. So we've evolved to have a, a paranoia about foreigners, which in its time made some sense, but in the modern world is, uh, is just completely dysfunctional and has nothing to do with the way the modern economy and societies work generally. Uh, and we've carried into the modern period. Uh, now, of course, uh, you know, the degree of anti-foreign bias does vary, but it varies between countries, varies over time. Actually, it seems to me we're probably in an unprecedentedly low level of anti-foreign bias right now. Huh. Uh, you know, so the U.S. is nearing an all-time high for the foreign-born percentage of the population, and you know there are you know there are uh, there, you know, you know, uh, while you know, while there is tons of, of anti-foreign and anti-immigrant sentiment, still at least now there's something else. Whereas if you go and go and read the U.S. during the 20s, there's pretty much no one defending uh, you know defending immigration at, at the time. It's just a very Again, like I mean, at the time, you know, it really, it really, is, it really is a very explicitly racist view. If we need to keep the non-Nordics out because they're inferior people, yeah, yeah. Uh, now there is the question. So back in the 19th century, did people actually have different views when policies were different? On the one hand, it seemed you, know, you think that they would because there's this big policy that how could there be such an extreme open borders policy if it wasn't popular? But uh, when I go and read stuff from the period, it doesn't seem like there was very much philosophical support for free immigration. I think it looks like it was more along the lines of. In the late 19th century, it hadn't dawned on people that you could restrict immigration. Yeah, yet. yeah, that's what I was going to say. Just yeah, it was to... more along the lines, along the line, you know, it'd be more along the lines of some of you saying you can pass a pass a law saying that everyone has to be nice from now on. You know, <laughs> it would just be like, well, how would that law work? What does that mean even? Like, you like who is the weirdo who's pushing this strange idea? So there was a period in the 19th century when, like, you know, people it wasn't the people who were welcoming immigrants with open arms or saying immigration is the strength of America. It was more along the lines of. This is just the way things are. People that you don't want move around and they show up. And what can you do? You know, and then, and then some politicians said, here's what we could do. We could pass laws saying they can't come. And, <laughs> and, and at first, again, it's like, that sounds weird. Yeah, I like it, but it's weird. And then after a while, it's like, OK, I guess a lot of people are talking about it. it's not weird anymore. And I liked I like the general motive all along. So let's go for it. Yeah, that, that's an interesting, interesting thesis. You know, something else that you said, actually, when you said that this is a probably an unprecedentedly uh, time of sort of low hostility towards yeah, immigrants historically. One of the most cosmopolitan periods ever, probably. Well, and, and that reminds me of one of the great insights of your first book, The Myth of the Rational Voter, that 
the the way that people behave in the market versus in the political arena is so different. And I think when when people oh, yeah. when, when I'm when I only read people's comments on let's say a blog post about open borders, it's easy to feel like oh my gosh, the world is hopeless. People hate immigrants. But when you actually look at what an economist might call someone's you know revealed preference, when you look right. at how people behave. They're interacting with people from all over the world at unprecedented levels, completely mm-hmm. peacefully yeah. and and loving it, right? Yeah. <laughs> it's yeah. just when they're asked to vote on something yes. and they don't have to bear any cost that they they sort of give an opinion that maybe they don't actually hold in the real world. So it's, it's easy to get pessimistic mm-hmm. if you only look at the political side. Right. Yeah, and again, of course, the problem is that it's opinion, not uh, that not behavior that polit- politicians generally cater to, cater <laughs> to. Yeah. So, yeah. you know, you do. So yeah, so I think the truth is that is that you know, like you know, in daily lives, like I, there's very little sign that Americans are hostile immigrants. I say actually most Americans go out of their way to be friendly and welcoming. Um, and I, you know, the Americans maybe a little bit more so than than other places, but you know, it, it's normally you know, human human default is just is just to try to make friends and be nice with people. And like like why make enemies when you don't have to? This is just very you know very yeah. low level social intelligence. But again, you know, the truth is that for the most part, people just aren't even conscious of how many of how many foreigners around them. You know, like, you know, most people are very focused on their own lives. Uh, people are, um, you know, you know, you know, people, people are like, you know, amazingly obtuse about what's going on around them. People are generally focused on like what exactly is going on in my life. Uh, you know, like one one of the big lessons from psychology is that people are just not paying nearly as much attention to you as you think. <laughs> That's always and, a good and, one to remember on the dance floor at a oh, wedding, yeah. you know. Oh, ex- exactly. And and of course, and of course, part of what's going on is that you're not paying very much attention to other people. Yep. And so you, who are you paying attention to? You're paying attention to yourself and you're caught up in your own thoughts and your own petty problems. So, I mean, part of the reason why immigration works so well is that people just don't think about it that much. And so, like, you know, if, if you, so it sort of reminds me of one of the very first uh, moves against free trade in late 19th century Britain was uh, Parliament passed laws requiring mandatory national origin labeling for products. So until then, free trade's going along just fine, and then suddenly everything is a label. Still legal to buy it. It's not ta- not tax, especially. But suddenly, you go, oh my God, this is German. It's German, German, Russian. Oh my God, and they start freaking out. Right, and it's really it's sort of like the what politics does is it reminds people about something that otherwise they wouldn't care about, and mm-hmm. um, and any like the so and it causes this very unfortunate national conversation about something that it would be better not to have a conversation about. Yeah, yeah, no, I, it's it's absolutely. Um... I'm always astounded when I'm reminded of the the difference in in behavior inside and outside of the the political sphere. Yeah. Well, well, so when it comes to immigration, and then I want to move on to the, to the other two topics I had lined up. What do you think? Again, this is kind of one of those silly questions, I suppose, because uh, because of the the institutions and all the things involved, there is no no magic wand. But what would you say would be the best way or a good way to work towards uh, open borders or something like it? Like, would you just if you could just wipe out all immigration restrictions restrictions today, would you, or do you think there's some process? Yeah, no, I mean, if I could do it today, I would. You know, there, there, are, there are plenty of things where I think it would be a disaster if you did it too quickly. I don't think immigration restrictions are like that. I think that, you know, like, there, you know, there are there are natural market forces that deter too many people from showing up too soon because in the short you know, in the short run when there's a big big wave of immigration then then real estate prices go up and wages go down unemployment rates go up so you know in the same way that when Israel was opened up to Soviet immigration you know there's a big wave but then word gets back that at least for the temporarily it's really hard to get a decent life in Israel and slows down and then you know then it just takes ten years 
Yeah. So, I mean, that, that's, that's so my view on immigration restrictions is not something where if you were to have a dramatic reversal policy that it would be that they like the, like the short run costs would be any, any, anything serious. Of course, the media would paint it as a disaster, but yeah. you know, no, that's, it's almost, that's, that's be ignored. It's almost a, you know, sort of from two, two different, uh, from a moral standpoint, the analogy I would use is, you know, if there's a bunch of people trapped in a cave on the brink of starvation, would you say, well, let's let them out one at a time slowly over yeah. time. Uh, and from an economic standpoint, it's like, if you had a gold mine in your backyard, would you say, now, hold on, hold on. <laughs> I don't want to, you know, or you're sitting on an oil well, I don't want to get, you know, start accessing all this oil. Uh, I'm going to go really yeah. slow just in case it causes problems. Um, yeah. Okay, so we got immigration. Right. Uh, yes, 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 yeah. So, but in terms of like more realistic things, so one of my big things is just cutting enforcement. Yeah. So cutting enforcement of employment, employment sanctions, reduce, reducing, reducing, uh, reducing efforts to restrict illegal immigration. Uh, you know, I have serious doubts about what. Yeah. You know, so, like again, there's a lot of anti-immigration people who hate the Reagan amnesty. I actually at least have some serious doubts whether that was really good for immigration because it was part of a deal where, on the one hand, amnesty for people already here, but on the other hand, a large increase in not only border enforcement but also in employer sanctions. It used to be legal to hire illegal immigrants. Once they were here, then it was not actually technically illegal to go and employ them. So I mean, I so and you know, if you're focusing on uh, you know, like immigrants in general rather than just the ones that are here, it's not clear to me that actually things were better as a result of of, of this act that, of course, anti-immigration people hate for the wrong reasons. But I think it's actually how many the things would get better if we just uh, stopped enforcing? <laughs> um, yeah, so, yeah, so, okay, low, so low enforcement. I'm a big fan of, low, of, of weak enforcement. Yeah, so, uh, it's, it's generally easier actually than getting laws off the books. No, I agree. In, in terms of realistic, like realistic stuff. How about if we could just have open borders with Canada? Start there. Yeah. I mean, the fact that we haven't gotten there just shows to me how, like, you know, it's depressing because like, well, it's gotten worse. Florida, I mean, at least at least as yeah. a, a casual tourist, you know, you didn't. When I was a kid, we I lived in Michigan. We used to go up to Canada every summer for vacation, and and somewhere, you know, ten years ago or so. All of a sudden, you had to, uh, you know, wait in line for hours and show passports and all this stuff to get back into to the U.S. It's, it feels like it's gotten worse. So, yeah. Um, okay, so the our, our alliterative topics, immigration, got that one, got your main radical thesis there. Procreation. Yep. This is this is such a weird one for me. It seems out of left field for you yes. to write this book, Selfish Reasons to Have More Kids. What made you come upon that, and what is sort of your main thesis in that book? Yes. So, I mean, probably actually the very first thing is uh, you know, very closely tied to my interest. So there's an economist named Julian Simon who did a lot of work on the economics of population. The, saying the Ultimate Resource is one the of the first phenomenal books. Yeah. Yes. So, I mean, I, I was introduced by this in, I believe, 1991 by uh, Sheldon Richmond when I was an K- intern at the Cato Institute. So that actually just gave me a general view about the case in favor of population. It's <laughs> how, like, you know, like the, there, you know, while while there are some you know some admitted usually overblown costs of higher population, there are also enormous benefits that almost no one talks about. And Simon misspelled those out to me, so that actually just in general gave me a pro-population view that uh, that I that I've had ever since, and I and I followed up on that, read more on it. Uh, but then sort of the, you know the next thing that was that that made a difference for me is I started reading work in behavioral genetics uh, studies of twins and adoptions. Uh, which the, and the, the reason why they're doing this research is they're trying to sort out nature from nurture. Why do people grow up to be the way they are? Is it because of the way they're raised? Is it their genetics? Because of other stuff? And I'm surprised when I started reading this that out of people who have looked at the data, there's a very strong consensus view that for most things, there's actually very little long-run effect of upbringing on how people turn out. Genetics is much more important than people think. And so that was news to me. 
And then there was, an, and then finally there was a big personal event in my life, which is uh, my my wife got pregnant with twins, <laughs> and so our first two our first two sons were identical twins. And again, it wasn't that having twins really changed my mind. It was just one more observation. Like I wouldn't put weight that one way or the other against you know decades of research, but it was a, a daily reminder. Wow, you're the kind of people that people study where they want to understand what makes people tick. They're the one. The, you are the kind of people like when people understand why do people turn out the way they do. This is where they go in order to figure it out. So, uh, so, so, that, so you're taking the insights of, of someone like Simon on a on a macro level that that humans are you know um, they're not yes. a drain on the economy. They're a valuable resource. On the personal level. How far are you going with your argument? Are you saying that uh, you will be happier and better off as an individual yes. parent if you have more children? Right, right. So, I mean, so just to follow, follow through with that. So then, you know, so then I've got these kids, and then, especially once I actually had kids, then I noticed how most of the other parents we knew were putting in an enormous amount of effort in their kids on the basis of a theory, <laughs> and the theory is that they have to put, have to do this. This is an investment in their kids' future, and as a result of all of the parental effort, the kids will live a decent life. That it will work. And if you, yeah. and if you yes, and if you don't do it, then your kids will not have a good life. <laughs> and uh, you know, and again, of course, now to them, it's not a theory. To them, it's just fact. Fact. You must take your kid to soccer if you want them to learn teamwork, and then as a result of teamwork, you'll be able to get, do well in school and get a good job and have a good life. Uh, so as the uh, as, you know, as George Michael, the son on the show Rest Development, said, "So I can have a happy life full of hard work." <laughs> so, right. All right. So anyway, I mean, I'm around all these parents, and the, and again, the parents seem to be quite unhappy and stressed and, out. And, and you're and, in Northern and, Virginia, which I lived yeah. there for a couple of years. The the helicopter parent thing is really strong in that area. Oh yeah, but you know, like you know, all over the country, this this is a very standard parenting style now. And you know, I and I you know, there is actually data and sociology on how do people spend their time. So the amount of time that people spend on parenting is much higher than it was in the past. And this is really striking because the, the, the research started during the baby boom back when the average mom had four kids, when she was a stay-at-home mom, when, da when uh, dads didn't help much. And yet moms spend more time on childcare now than they did then. Wow. More absolute hours. Uh, the, you know, so, but anyway, so then I'm looking around and seeing all these parents doing all this stuff and acting like it's a fact, a law of nature that they have to do it and they, ha and they have to suffer in order to be decent parents. And then I'm remembering, wait, isn't there all this research saying you're just wrong? Right? And then you're just mistaken all this. And really, really the inspiration for the book was to say, look, you know, so two things. First of all, research says that you're incorrect about the effects of your parenting on your kids. It's not true. You have to do this stuff in order to give them a decent, a decent, uh, a, to, to, for them to turn into decent adults. So at minimum, this means that you, there's a lot of, of so-called investment you're doing that's actually just waste. And if you don't like it and, and your kid doesn't like it, you should stop. And then, the, but then, the, like the the origin of the title of the book is, I'm really thinking like an economist and saying, wait a second. So if you have overestimated the price, if you have made the price of a kid much higher than it really than it really actually objectively needs to be, then after you stop wasting the resources, you should also reconsider how many kids to have, because having a child is a lot less pain and suffering than you than you thought. That is a reason for you to at least consider having an additional kid. So is your, um, do you think that all of the sort of, I don't know, over parenting for lack of a better term and, and, you know, having kids focusing on trying to get into college when they're five and, you know, taking Mandarin classes and all that stuff, you're not actually claiming that that's bad for the kids. You're just claiming it right. really doesn't matter either way. Uh, yeah. so you well, might I'm as well do what's happy in the moment, uh, because it's not going to have, yeah, it's going to so have a minimal impact. Yeah. I'm saying it doesn't matter much in the long run and in the short run, that's something that's easier to judge, but at least it seems to me that, that a lot of times child and parent are both unhappy, so stop. Yeah. You know, so if it's something where they both like doing it, great. So, 
By the way, so like when when I did, when I wrote an op-ed for the Wall Street Journal, as you might know, authors generally don't get to choose the titles of their pieces. So the Wall Street Journal told told the piece uh, titled the piece something like "Lessons in Twin Research Have More Kids Pay Less Attention to Them." Now this is odd because actually I spend a ton of time with my kids. I mean I, I I'm a very active dad, but it's just I spend less, time less doing, attempts I, to control them. Yeah, I spend time doing stuff that's fun. Yeah. We do fun stuff together. We, what, I, I don't. I don't try bullying them or like making them do stuff they don't want to do. What What do you think? What's the most intelligent critique you received on that book? Let's see. Most intelligent critique I've received. So, I mean, there are a number of critiques that I anticipated in the book. So, it would have been intelligent if I hadn't put it in. But when someone says, <laughs> oh, "I didn't think about this," and it's in the book, so you know, like you know, one 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 of the key things is almost all this research is based upon uh, first world countries. So there's not there's very little research on what happens if you take a kid out of Congo and move him to America, and there I think that there's very strong evidence that that would make an enormous difference and would be great for him. So that so, so given yeah. sort of a resource rich environment where yeah. kids have access yes. to so many things, yeah. I mean, it's I mean, not doing being, them much yeah. good. Yeah. yeah, just being in a first world country, really. Yeah, yeah. Um, so yeah. I mean, in terms of like other critiques, and so like I mean, so many of them are just based upon reading into it something that I explicitly said I was not saying. So, you know, like, you know, the, the angriest people were actually the, the child free, the voluntarily childless. And they got very upset at me, even though I thought I went out of my way to say, look, if you just don't like kids, this book, like, like you may read this book for curiosity, but I'm not nagging you. I'm not pushing you. I'm just saying that if you do have any interest in kids, then this is, this is, then, then there's some relevant information that you might not know. <laughs> but, uh, you know, but it seems like they, you know, they, like there were many of them just got very agitated at, <laughs> Uh, and again, like, you know, like basically arguing with what they think I said rather than what I actually said. And, you know, and so, said, well, so do you feel pressure to have more kids now after writing that book? Uh, well, I, I actually had, um, you know, so I, like while I was writing it, we found out we we're having a third one and then uh, subsequently we had our fourth one. So uh, now, like, you know, like, so we're, you know, so now, now we're too old, really. But, <laughs> uh, but you know, like, you know, four, four is good. I feel I feel I feel satisfied. Yeah. Yeah. So. Um, this is actually a good segue to to the final topic, education, which is the topic of your forthcoming book. One thing you said about uh, third world country versus um, a developed country really made me think about in in education this assumption that um, kids are gaining, they're being formed by their educational experiences, particularly higher education. And I think I think in a country like the United States, where there is no shortage of access to information on anything you want. I mean, you can, you can take free online classes. You can go sit in on a college class for free that there's really no value to the purely informational aspect. Colleges are no longer someplace where you go, where you get information you just can't get anywhere else. Um, but that may be true in a country where you don't have access to the internet or anything like that. There may, you know, a person like that getting into a a college and let's say in the United States, they're, they're gaining access to a whole world of sort of resources that they didn't. But um, anyway, that, that's sort of a maybe maybe that will come up. But but I want you to give me in your own words, what is the thesis of your book, The Case Against Education? Very provocative title. Yeah, so the heart of it is something called the signaling model of education. It just says this. A lot of the reason why education pays, which it does, is not that you have learned useful job skills, but rather that you have showed off for employers. You, you know, you're basically you're doing a dance, saying, or or you're or you're jumping through hoops, saying, "Look at me, look at me, look at what I can do. I can do stuff that other people can't. So hire me." And in terms of what makes sense for you as an individual, it doesn't really make much difference why it actually it is that employers are paying you. But in terms of government policy, it makes an enormous difference. 
because if education is actually teaching people useful job skills, then if everybody gets more education, everyone can actually have a higher standard of living. But if all that's going on is that people are showing off, everybody shows off more, everybody can't be better than every, everybody can't be above average in how, how they look, what's going to happen rather is that you're going to get what's called credential inflation, where the degrees you need to get the same job you otherwise would have had increase because the people that you're competing with now have more education. So, so, so it's essentially signaling model says that a lot of education is very socially wasteful because it's, if not zero sum, at least the benefit is much less than it looks because mostly what you're doing with education is just looking good compared to other people. So, so would you say that, uh, I'm curious your thoughts on this, the value of that signal, uh, because, because degrees are becoming more and more commonplace, anecdotally, I hear all the time employers saying they don't know what it means anymore. It's not that valuable. Even those that still list it as a requirement, mm -hmm. have it, you must have mm -hmm. a bachelor's degree. They actually don't care. They just list that because there's nothing else that they, they're just, it's in the absence of a better signal. Mm -hmm. Um, and I've noticed this phenomenon where the best and brightest, uh, young people who are capable of creating a signal that's stronger, let's say a GitHub portfolio of, um, you know, their, their coding skills, or they've been able to, uh, build a website or start a company that signal is more valuable than a typical degree. So they're capable. The degree is actually worth less to them now, but to the, to the marginal student, to the average student, uh, the degree sort of makes them look better than maybe they actually are. Um, whereas the really bright students, that signal essentially says, they're more or less like everybody else with a degree and maybe they're better. Do you think that that value, I guess, is changing? Do you think the signaling power is coming down at all? I don't see any sign of it, actually. So, I mean, like things may be loosening up just a little bit, but as far as I can tell, the, 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 the harsh reality is this. There are alternate ways of convincing employers you're good, but you have to be vastly better to get a, hired by uh, hired by a non-conventional channel than by a conventional channel. So one thing that I've heard from people familiar with Google is, on the one hand, you can get hired in Google without a degree if you won a programming contest. But when I asked, so how many people can get hired at Google from a programming contest? Uh, five a year. How many people get hired from having, you know, you know, from having uh, con you know, conventional computer science degrees with top grades from top schools? Like a thousand a year. So you have to be vastly better to get in through the back door. And that seems to, and that in many ways may even be truer than ever. So computer science in the 70s and 80s, a lot of people really could get hired without the credentials. But again, the problem is always if there aren't, unless there are a lot of good people without the credential, the easiest thing for employers to do is figure if you don't have the credential, then we're not going to bother interviewing you because we're looking for a way to thin, to thin the interview pool because we have too many applications. Yeah, you know, it almost strikes me as the, um, you know, those who can who can do it without a credential have to be sort of the very, very elite, very top notch, yes. able to do a lot. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of what college used to be, right? To, to mm -hmm. be able to cut it in college, it was a very, very small percentage of people. Uh, and it's funny how that is, has almost reversed. Like it's not that hard to get a college degree right now. Mm -hmm. uh, for most Well, people. it's funny you should say that because the actual fraction of Americans, um, American young people who uh, get one is still only about a third. Is that, and, there's like 40 yes, plus, yeah, 40 yeah, something. I don't percent. think so. Yeah, so not, okay, not, so not your, your data is, about, I'm sure, more up to date. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so, I mean, you know, so it's up to like 70% of people start some kind of college after high school, but still, like, the fraction that finishes is quite low. And, and, uh, and, like, and, and, uh, and out of the people finish, very common, like, you know, like only about 35% of people who do it full time finish in four years, it's like 55% for five years, 60% for six years. Yeah. And, and you look around and say, like, so we ask so little of students and how, and like, seems so easy, and yet, Tons of people don't finish, and those who finish take extra years. What's going on? 
And I mean, ultimately, I say like we just have to accept as a fact that nor- that most people find this difficult to finish for whatever reason, whether they're really lazy or they just don't like or they just school's really boring or they just don't like having to conform. Um, so, so now, so, by, now by the way, so on this point, uh, college degree doesn't mean that much anymore. There's two totally different versions of that. One version is it doesn't mean much anymore, so I'll give a chance to people who don't have college degrees. I see no sign of that at all going on. The other thing you could say is it doesn't mean much anymore, so now I'm going to favor people with the harder majors or with more advanced degrees, with graduate degrees. That's what I see, is that as the number, the share of the population with college degrees goes up, then employers uh, you know, demand additional degrees. Rather than saying the degree is meaningless, who cares? They say the, the degree doesn't mean that much. I need more degrees or, I, or, or you won't have a chance of getting the job. And it's the second thing that I see going on, which means that rather than people giving up on school, they're actually feeling the need to do more. Yeah, it's interesting that, um, you know, I'm sure you're looking at a lot of uh, interesting aggregate data. I I know that in so, for example, with with our company Praxis, we have this network of of business partners. There's a couple hundred, mostly five to 50 person, um, you know, companies that are started by entrepreneurs. And within that network, and this is pretty common uh, when I talk to those types of business owners, they are they're actively seeking some alternative way to find talent because they're aware of how inefficient it is for everyone involved. For, for them, they don't know what a degree means anymore unless it has a bunch of additional stuff with it, um, like work experience and other things. And for the for many of these young people, they know that not only the skills they're getting or whatever knowledge they're getting in college is not that relevant to the jobs they're going to do, but the the degree inflation means that there's so much more competition. So my question to you is, Anytime there's this much inefficiency in the marketplace where it's clear everyone knows there's there's a reason everyone is using this degree signal because it's it's rational to do so and it's subsidized for the people who are doing it. It's artificially cheap, et cetera. But there's also a ton of inefficiency um, because it's it's pretty crude. It's not that good, which to me says there's a lot of opportunity for innovation. Where do you see the most likely sources of innovation coming to sort of compete with that relatively inefficient signal? I mean, if I knew that, I, I might be uh, doing a startup myself in order to take advantage of it. <laughs> well, that's, so, well I mean, your work is what inspired yeah, me to yeah, launch my own. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, so you're well, supposed well, to say Praxis. Praxis. Really, <laughs> yes, it's great. Uh, but uh, in, in terms of you know, what, you know, what's most likely, I mean, again, it's, it's always easy to say, uh, you know, something with the internet, something with big data. <laughs> um, so, I mean, that that's plausible. But the as to like, solve it. Yeah, yeah but. Uh, but as to more specifically what that would be, um, again, if I if I knew that, I, I I might be trying to get rich doing it. I mean, I mean, ultimately, you know, so there is the problem that ev- that you know every individual really is unique. It's very and and of course even workplaces are unique. So like a lot of times, it's about getting people who work well together who ha- who have personalities that work that work well together. Uh, if you go and read in the um, let's see in industrial psychology where they try to figure out uh, tests and things of improving hiring. Their usual answer is the best thing to do is IQ testing, but when you look at surveys of employers, they generally say they don't think IQ testing works very well. And there's some um, legal. Uh, I think there's some legal difficulties. Well, uh, that's one of the main things I investigated in my book. Turns out the legal barriers to IQ to hiring based on IQ are very slim. Oh, really? Yes, so, I actually. Because it used to be more common. Yes. Was that just a cultural change? Um, so, I mean, like the basic story is it was a bit more common, and then there was a Supreme Court case that scared people. Although the Supreme Court case, actually, if you read it, it should have scared everyone about everything because the standards the Supreme Court set up were just unmeetable. Because <laughs> not only do you have to demonstrate that whatever basis you use for hiring uh, does, in fact, predict job performance in your exact job, 
But furthermore, you have to show there's no better way. There's no better way of doing it that that leads to less discriminatory <laughs> results. So as to how you would ever show that what you're doing is like there's no better way of doing it. Like it's on, it's in real world it's undoable, but of course, yeah, like in practice, the courts have not enforced the ruling. So, um, but anyway, anyway, so what what you know what I read about it is that for a while people were scared, but uh, in the end, uh, you know, like there's just not it's there's not very many lawsuits brought on the basis of this. They're hard to win, and there have been, there are a lot of expert witnesses now that know how to win these cases. So I mean, here's the thing: is that we know a bunch of businesses that bend the law or break the law because they see a profit opportunity and they think they can get away with it. So Uber. All right, and it's totally standard. Plenty of other businesses where they bend the law or break the law because they're just not very well enforced, and there's money to be made. So it seems very hard to believe to me that, given how weak the enforcement and and just unclear the uh, unclear uh, unclarity about the illegality of IQ testing, that if it were really so great, employers wouldn't be doing it. But there is a lot of evidence from psychology that it's a good system. So this is one of the main things that just puzzles me, and I don't have a good answer for it. Huh. Um, one of the other things that I wonder is why more. And again, this is sort of part of what a little bit of what the praxis business model is built on but why more companies don't say well you can't really know for sure how well someone works with you until they've worked with you so we will let someone come and work here for free for a certain amount of time and if they're really good we'll hire them on now i, I know there are some again i don't know how well they're enforced but there are some legal mm -hmm. barriers and problems to working yeah. for free except yeah. for under very specific conditions yes so those are probably better enforced i've also also looked into that so yeah, so essentially, if, if it's uh, if it's in affiliation with a college, then you're probably safe. <laughs> so if you can pay tuition yes. to work for free, <laughs> yeah, yeah, you pay tuition to work for free. But you know, if McDonald's tried doing this, I, I'm almost certain that they, that the minute that they would be shut down or, yeah. or, or heavily fined for breaking the minimum wage. So what do you uh, what do you think is most likely to happen next? Do you think college is going to uh, governments are going to start subsidizing it even further and therefore uh, sort of increasing the degree inflation? What do you what what would you predict to be around the corner? Now, ultimately, I don't think that the subsidies are going to be increased because there's too many other budgetary pressures that are competing. Uh, the aging of the population is just making is squeezing squeezing budgets. So I don't think that there's going to be, uh, I don't think I don't think I don't think there's going to be a big increase uh, in, increase in the spending, and all, and also just the you know, like levels of spending for K through 12 especially have gotten to astronomical levels per student. Uh, again, it seems seems like they, you know they, they probably have hit a wall, or or at least I don't, I don't see any any further big expansions. Um, so as, as to what, as to what's going to happen in the future, then I, I, I mean, I, I think that we're just going to muddle through. So for, you know, so, you know, you know there's been, there's been a, a, a fairly long run tendency towards an increase in list price for tuition, especially for public universities. Little known is that actually after all of the discounts and everything that colleges offer, the increase in the price of college is actually quite small compared, uh, compared to what people think. Hmm. So, so again, if, if you're up, if you're upper middle, upper middle class, then there's been a huge change in what you pay for college for public university. But if you are just regular middle class, lower middle class, there's actually been very little change. Huh. Uh, you know, over, you know, like in, you know, inflation adjusted. So because um, of the the yeah. various grants and, and yeah. things right, like yeah. that, yes, yeah, yeah. So, and, and, and also that you know, schools have been making up a lot of the, the deficits by just charging richer people more. When is the case against education expected to come out? I now, uh, so now that I have an actual first draft, I'm confident I can have it in 2017. Okay. So I, I might be able to have it done by 2016, but I'd feel rushed and would be nervous about quality control. But also, I just think it's very bad to release a, any book of big ideas during election year because all the free media gets cannibalized by oh, the election. That's a great point. Yeah. Um, Brian, one final question for you. What would you like to be known for? 
What would I like to be known for? Let's see. Hmm. So I, I so like on, honestly, I guess I guess I like to be known for being a person of great intellectual integrity and you know some someone someone where people who, who people smart people will say like you know I don't agree with them on this, but uh, like I can tell that he that, that he really put in a lot of work. He crafted some arguments that that, that at least made me think. Uh, so that's really important to me. Although. Um, you know, I think I'd be more satisfied if I could be known as the person who was intellectually responsible for ending immigration restrictions on on, on planet Earth. Um, you know, that you know, so that seems like a real long shot. And uh, so uh, if I could also be known as a great father, that would mean a lot to me too. So yeah, I sometimes thought about what I'd like to have on my t- on, on my tombstone. Uh, so yeah, I mean any, any of those any of those would be good. Uh, there's uh, there's also an old saying: uh, "Heroes called me friend." I like that one too. So. So Brian Kaplan, uh, intellectually respectable, wonderful father and destroyer of immigration restrictions. I like it. (laughs) All right. 